0: Welcome to a Redemption's Hill podcast. For more information about Redemption Hill, go to redemptionshill.com. We're going to read the text in just a second, but uh, before we do that, I would just say this. My, my prayer for us um, at the end of the week, this weekend, this morning, uh, is just this through this text, that the beauty of your identity in Jesus would be more sweet and more precious to you by the time I walk out. The, the hope is that you would see that as something bigger than, than maybe before, and I believe that God can do that, and I believe that's part of the point of this text. So that, that is our hope, just kind of laying the cards out even before we start. So Romans chapter uh, 6, 1 through 14 is where we are at today. I'm going to read that to us, and then we'll jump right in. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means, how can we who have died to sin still live in it? We, knew, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died for us set us free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death he died to sin once for all but the life he lives he lives to God so you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ in Christ alive to God in Jesus Christ let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourselves to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have, been, uh, that who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law, but under grace. This is the word of the Lord. So we open up Romans today. Uh, and what we're going to see in, in the pathway of this book is not a, a complete shift, but a little bit of an angular shift uh, from uh, Paul, from us. We've got a slide already from this to kind of show this shift. Paul has focused on what God has accomplished for us in the gospel in chapters one through five, right? What God has accomplished for us so far. Now, in chapters six through eight, the, the transition or the angular difference a little bit is he's going to start focusing on what God will accomplish. In us through the gospel. What he has already and what he will accomplish. Those are the words. Another way to think of it is in 1 through 5, we see the reality of of God's work completely, while in 6 through 8, the chapters that we're going to be moving into, we're going to dive into what does it look like to experience God's work as his people as it works itself out inside of us. If we remember the opening of the book of Romans, uh, Paul declared at the very front end, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. And he says it's, it's like dynamite. It's a dynamic power as it radiates out and it leaves a believer not, cha- or not the same as they used to be. This powerful gospel will actually go into the hearts of believers and it'll produce actual character and behavioral changes in us. And those changes, the things that the gospel does, they're not payable upon death. Right? They don't just happen later someday or after you die. They happen in your life now. This is a part that we can kind of easily get into confusion about eternal life doesn't start when you stop breathing. Eternal life, new kingdom life, life in the kingdom, a brand new creation life starts at the moment of salvation. Now here's kind of the catch. Will it be perfect the second that you're saved? No. No, no, it won't. Will, will your character be fully formed right out of the gate at the moment that your life is transformed and made new in Christ? I, I, I wish mine was, but but no, it's going to be a little bit of a process. But the big takeaway is, is, though it's not perfect at the moment of salvation, the gospel will be working immediately in us in massive ways, and the gospel will change us from the inside out. This change absolutely happens to all Believers, the gospel will change us. The dynamic power will not leave us the same. So so hear me, as Paul is moving into these texts, he's not gonna all of a sudden do a gotcha move where he's like, okay, uh, get ready to pay off all of that free grace stuff, right? It's not actually free. You're gonna have to earn it. You're gonna have to work it off. You're gonna have to earn really good behavior marks. That's not gonna be his point as he begins to focus in these back texts about the effects of the gospel in us. His message will be this. Let me open the door for you so that you may see the full picture of who you are in Christ. That's what he wants us to see. Uh, Because you are not who you used to be if you follow Christ. You're a brand new creation, alive in Christ and dead to sin. That dead to sin is huge for today. You're no longer a son of Adam. That's what we went into last week, but you're a son or daughter of the Most High. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're actually a slave to righteousness. You're no longer a hostage to your desires. You're free. You are. Free now in Christ. Now, we seem to be in this weird moment in culture where, if actions are mentioned, if character or holiness or obedience or goodness or, or or righteousness or sanctification are brought up, large swaths of people will get super angry and they'll begin to yell foul. And they'll begin to say things like legalistic and and, and you're hurting people. And they say you're shaming people and, and that you're bringing people down and you're tearing them down instead of lifting them up in the gospel. You're not loving like Jesus. You're not being like Christ. There's a large movement that does this anytime you mention any type of behavioral thing. But this is why Paul spent five entire chapters telling us the indicatives of the gospel, what's already been done telling us that what God has done through Jesus, what Jesus earned, what Jesus achieved, how Jesus did the work, how Jesus did the striving, how Jesus did the the laboring. The gospel tells us what's been done for you but before it ever asks anything of you. That's why Paul spent the first five chapters doing what he's done in faith, in faith, in faith, all in Christ, all in Christ. It puts the indicative, what's been done, before the imperative, what must now happen. what we have to understand is our actions are not currency to buy the favor of God. That's the good news of the gospel, right? Because if our actions were currency to win God's favor, the message inside the Bible or the message in our reality that we would see is, is we'll never win his favor. Instead, our actions are made new when God has given us his favor, his favor rewires how we live and how we exist now even keeping some of that in mind and indicative and imperative and what's been done before what must now happen there are still some that would hear that and they're still going to go yeah I don't care and they're going to yell foul whenever you mention behavior they're going to say well that's a shame tactic that that's that's evil that that's oppressive that's that's controlling that that that's harmful to people and it tells them that they're not enough and that Jesus wouldn't ever do that and because of that mindset, we need to remind ourselves of something out of the gate before we get into chapters six, seven, and eight. Holiness and living and obedience to God is not a punishment, it's a gift. Like we've gotta be able to say that to our hearts all the time. It is not a punishment to follow God. It's not a, a punishment to have sanctification and obedience and holiness work out in your, in your life. It is a gift. And I, and I don't mean that as a cute little empty catchphrase, it's actually true. When has your sin ever delivered the full promise that it gave you? When has chasing your desires in an unrestrained way ever turned out pretty well for you? When has unchecked anger ever produced beautiful fruit? When has putting your identity in work or play or money or relationships or kids or anything else, when has that ever actually helped you out? When has gossip filled the longing inside of your heart instead of actually made it much worse? See, uh, our world screams, follow what you want follow your desire, do what you want, follow your truth, be who you want to be. But what we need to understand and, and say in reality is that plan is leaving people more empty and broken than anything ever has. It may be the demand of the world to let people do what they want, but, but in reality, it's not working out very well. I would argue that that plan is harmful and shame building, not the plan to follow God, not a call to holiness, not a call to remember who Christ is and what he wants to do in his people. So there'll be some terms that we want to remind ourselves of, and they'll be used uh, for for a little bit moving forward. Uh, justification, sanctification, and glorification. Uh, justification is saved from the penalty of sin. That's what that means. Sanctification is saved from. The power of sin, we're going to be digging a lot into that in this week and the next couple weeks. And glorification is saved from the presence of sin, right? So saved from the penalty, saved from the power, saved from the presence. Now Paul has discussed justification over and over in the first five chapters of the book. It's when God gives the legal declaration over a life that that person is righteous. Not because they're actually righteous, but because of the righteousness of Jesus that gets credited to them. That's where we got that word imputation, The righteousness of Christ is given to unrighteous people through faith, and because of that, there is no penalty for them anymore. Are they perfect? Absolutely not, but the perfect one stands in their place, and his righteousness is credited to them, and there is no penalty for sin for them. That's first, justification. Now, sanctification is the concept that we're kind of going into today. It starts, hear me, after justification, Right afterwards. This part is incredibly important. A person is already declared righteous before sanctification ever kicks off, but sanctification is where a person starts to resist the power of sin in their life. They begin to rebel against the sin that used to entrap them. They begin to rebel against their old rebellion. They begin to resist the sin that, that comes over towards their life. This is what it looks like to, to be free from sin or live free from sin Is you begin to resist the power that used to always captivate you and take you. Now, a person isn't perfect But in sanctification, what we understand is the power to resist sin and evil grows and they're able to resist as they look more like their justifier, Jesus, right? So in the beginning, you have no penalty for sin when your faith is in Jesus. Then you grow to look more like Jesus as the power of sin isn't as powerful over you. And you can actually say no and look more like Jesus. This is sanctification and glorification that comes last. We have to wait a little bit longer for this one to happen. Glorification happens when sin isn't just resisted, but it is eradicated. This is our future hope of glory. When Christ will return and do away with sin and death, like they already have been given an immortal blow, they just don't know that they're dead yet. Glorification happens when Christ returns and renews all things. So while sanctification will cause us to sin less in the here and the now, uh, so we won't stop sinning uh, perfectly here, one day it'll be all the way gone. And this is in glorification when Christ makes all things new. Again, those terms don't happen all at once, and we get in trouble when we cross them. Justification happens first. You have no penalty and are declared righteous. Then then the freedom of that over you, then you become sanctified. The power of sin lessens more and more in your life as you look more like Jesus, and then glorification is what you're tasting in heaven. Sanctification doesn't lead to justification. We do not earn our grace. Sanctification follows it. And again, the drum that Paul will beat and we will beat is sanctification is not a punishment, it is a gift as well. To look more like Jesus, have the power of sin loosen its hold over you, to walk more like Christ is a gift. The text today opens up kind of as a foreseen pushback. Again, Paul does this all over Romans. At the end of chapter 5, he said this, that the law came to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more what paul was trying to say uh was not that people were going to be saved by the introduction of the the law in the old testament many religious people think that the law and following it yields salvation but paul points out at the introduction when the law was actually introduced into humanity The amount of sin actually increased because there's a formal gauge of what's right and wrong before the the Lord when the law was given. So the breaking of what is right and wrong becomes more apparent when the law is given, so all of a sudden there is more sin. The law came not to, to, to condemn us and also not to save us. The law came to show us that we need redemption and salvation, we covered this last week, to show us that something was was wrong ever since the fall and ever since Adam's likeness was was something placed over us. So in showing us that we need salvation, the amount of sin increased when the law was given. But with that increase, there was still a plan to save sinners. So Paul opens up the text today addressing those who take that mindset. Okay, you said that the law was given, and then because the law was given, there was more sin, but hey, that's okay because grace abounded. So some people are going to take that and they're going to kind of say this, okay, well, since grace abounded through the law and that was a good thing, shouldn't we just continue to sin and, and like be our own true self and kind of do what we want and then, and then grace can abound in us too and then like grace can abound everywhere and it's just going to be, it's going to be great and the logic is kind of this, like we can kind of do what we want. God will look loving and more kind because he forgives us and everything's going to be right. And Paul goes, um, yeah, by no means should you do that. That, that, that is a complete misunderstanding. In, in the original text or in the text is kind of this underlying idea. If you take the grace of God to mean, hey, I can sin and do whatever I want. And, and grace will just kind of abound because Jesus is good and God is loving. His initiative or his mindset is going to be is if you believe that and walk that way, you do not know Jesus. It doesn't matter what you say. By no means should you sin all the more so that grace should abound. Now, we should slow down a little bit for a second with this. This logic of sin more so grace should abound is all over the world around us. And we may mentally know, like us here and and good old members of the church and people who've walked in the gospel for a long time, we may know that this mentality to keep sinning so that grace should abound should not be championed that it goes against what Christ came to do and what he's wanting to do in your heart. We, we may know that, but he, here's my, my wonder for us. I wonder if we know it only in regards to sins like theft, racism, murder, and rape. Agreeing, well, of course, we shouldn't do those deplorable sins. Of course, no, 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 we shouldn't do those more so that grace should abound. But what about the other ones? What about envy? Do we treat it the same way? What about bitterness that we actually foster in our heart towards some people? What about boasting? Do we we think that should increase? What about our anger? What about sins of desire? Do, do, Do we think those should increase? What about white lies that we just say, hey, nobody's getting harmed. It just makes it easier to do this and... What about preferential treatment? What about judging? What about gossiping? What about spreading strife? What about the the kind of uh, sin of the day, it seems? What about an unhealthy appetite for controversy? What about the sin of indifference? What about gluttony? What about drunkenness? Do we view those the same way? Or are we maybe a little bit more okay with those just kind of staying in our heart and thinking grace will abound? Because when Paul says, by no means should we sin all the more so that grace should abound, there's no qualifier statement there about the type of sin that he's talking about. He means any sin. No sin should increase so that grace should abound. Not just the top sins in your mind or the most terrible sins. Any and all sins should not be increasing so grace should abound. There's no qualifier. There's no sin that we should hold on to, walk in, or let increase in our lives. But here's the kicker that may be a little different from you. Notice the why. He doesn't say, well, make sure that these sins don't increase in your life so that you can earn God's favor. He doesn't say, don't allow those sins to increase in your life so that God won't smite you either. He says, don't do it because it's not who you are anymore. He begins to speak into your identity. Our world is consumed with identity. And here's the reality. We should be too, just a different kind. It's not who you are, so don't be that anymore. Right, the verses. how can we who died to sin still live in it? This is not tricky. He's talking about who you are now. How can you do that? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, here it is, we too might walk in newness of life. That newness of life, this is who you are. This is what he has for you. You are in union, united with Christ, if you're in a believer in Christ. Friends, we need to see salvation as something much more beautiful than just a divine escape from penalty and wrath. Yes, there's a beauty that there is no penalty anymore, but there's so much more happening than just that. Paul says, don't you get it? The old you is God. The Adam follower is dead. Remember from the text last week, the person who is lost in sin, who is entrapped by it, they no longer exist. That's not you anymore. If you who lived before died to sin, how can you live in sin now? If that old identity died completely to sin where you're not alive to that anymore, then how can the new you live in sin anymore when you died to it before? He's going, that's not who you are. It's again a question of identity. To continue on sinning is no longer a matter of wrath for a child of God. It's to live out an identity that's not yours anymore. That's not you, child of God. Paul uses the language of baptism to explain union even more to us as well. The same way Christ died on the cross, those who are in him, remember, we're united, connected with, not just forgiven by him, connected with him, those in him die as well. He died for our sin on the cross. We die to our sin on the cross when our faith is placed in him. Both of us die. Notice Paul is straining here to, to kind of grasp the depth of this force. Being baptized into Christ's death isn't just kind of some airy, weird nonsense that he's bringing up. If you are in Christ, united with him, then literally an old person is gone. They do not exist anymore. Hear this. The old you isn't suppressed. They're not kept in check. Like you don't, you don't know like a new submission hold to kind of keep them from running away. They're not suppressed. They're dead. They don't exist anymore. Look at how far he presses it. The old you didn't just die, they're buried. They're under the dirt. They're not coming back ever again. That person is gone. What raises up, what comes now is a new life that is new in Christ and gets to walk in the newness of life. It's different. You're not who you used to be. Don't walk in what you used to walk in. That's such an encouraging part. If you died with Christ, don't you realize that you'll certainly be united in his resurrection life as well? That you who raises up in new life is not dominated by sin anymore. In the here and now, your resurrection life is a life that you're not entangled and trapped by and just destined to sin anymore. You are not dominated. Previously, your sinful desires ruled over you. You couldn't even help it in some ways. You could not resist. Completely under the control of sin. Now, however, in this newness of life, sin no longer dominates you we have the ability to resist the rebellion that we used to love and live in. We're no longer slaves to sin. We're children of God. you Are hearing these terms over and over? No longer slaves. You are free. Newness of life. Verse six, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin may be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died Right, this is free, it's not even in the notes. Do you realize in the Old Testament, you couldn't even go before God and pray. Now you're alive in a newness of life. You can walk with the Son by the Spirit, uh, or by the, by the Spirit and, and you are good with the Lord. This is a complete identity change. You couldn't even pray, and now you're dead to sin, alive in Christ. The Spirit walks with you and shows you the beauty of Jesus. Jesus promises never to leave you and forsake you, and you're at peace with God. Your identity is not what it used to be. Paul's beating this drum with everything he can to kind of make it obvious. He says, in Christ, when we are united with him, when we are saved, our old self was crucified so that body of sin could be brought to nothing. By body of sin, imagine like the the body of work that you have regarding your sin. Your body of sin, he died to put that to death. So it could be brought to nothing. Again, he did not die so you could manage your sin better. He did not die so you could have more respectable sins. He did not die so you'd be better at navigating around Jesus-y people, the sins that you prefer to keep. He died so that your old self and that body of sin could be brought to nothing so it could die. Where sin used to reign, now it is made low. He says, he did this so that we may no longer be slaves, so that we would be set free from the power of sin over our life. Friend, sin management is a difficult game. I don't recommend it. How often do we get kind of twisted up in our own mind where we begin to think a call to holiness is a bummer? I would, but I can't. What Paul is reminding us is a call to stay away from sin is a call to victory in life, not a call to death. Now, not all the language in here is just about death. Paul reminds us, if you're connected uh, to uh, Christ's death, you'll also uh, realize that you're connected to his resurrection as well. And there's going to be two forms of connection to his resurrection. In the here and now, hey, you're alive in newness of life and can resist sin. And there's a future element that he begins to talk about as well. The same way that he defeated death, so shall we. Death will no longer reign. Does this mean we won't die? No, 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 you will. One day you will stop breathing But we shall rise again with Christ. And the benefits that he has gained, we will walk in ourselves. How are we to process this? This is the future hope of glory. That like death couldn't hold Jesus, it won't us either. And when that happens, sins will be a distant memory. This is glorification. Right now, if you're in Christ, you have the power to resist sin. One day, sin won't even be a reality for you anymore. Again, while now, if you're in Christ, you're dead to sin and it doesn't control you. One day when you physically die, you'll rise again with Christ and sin won't be there for you. It'll just be gone. So we have the power to resist sin now in union with Christ. We've got to remind ourselves of that. Instead of saying, brother, you, 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 you disappointed me. The language is, brother, that's not who you are anymore. And you have the power to fight that. Someday sin will be undone. This is the identity that Paul is reminding us. You are dead to sin. It has no hold on you, child of God. Why are you letting it keep you? It can't touch you. Walk away. That's not you. Verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. To make you obey its passions. Notice even in that language, before it could make you obey, now it can't. Why are you letting it still make you obey then? Walk away. Do not present your members to to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who might be brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness, for sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace. That's a beautiful verse. Paul begins to walk into the practical side here for us at the end. You once obeyed your passions of your flesh. Your desires, steer, uh, your desires uh, steered you. You're kind of like a, a puppet. You're just controlled. But don't you get it? Christ cut the strings. You are not stuck anymore. Do not let sin reign over your, model, your body anymore because you now reign over it. It calls to mind the scripture, awake, oh sleeper, realize you aren't that body of death anymore. That's not who you are anymore. Christ has made you new. He has breathed life into you. That is not you. So get up and walk in the newness of life that he has for you. This is so good for us to hear. He doesn't say, hey, stop sinning because I said. Or stop sinning because I'll disown you. Or stop sinning because I'll take toys away from you. He says, don't let sin reign because that's literally not who you are anymore. That's not your identity. Think about the enemy of God, how he works. The Bible calls him a liar and an accuser. He whispers into our ear all types of accusations. but, But here's the reality of what he does most of the time. He whispers into your ear statements of old identity all the time, even if you are made new in Christ. What does that look like? even after you are justified, it looks like him whispering into your ear, you always mess up. You always do the wrong thing. You're never good enough. You always react that way. No matter how many times you say you're not gonna do it, you do it again, look at you. You never get it right. You're not good with God. You can't be forgiven. Did you see what you just did or how you reacted to that person? You can't be forgiven. And even if you are forgiven somehow, you're surely not loved. The whole world sees how worthless your deeds are. Are you kidding me? Why does he do this? Well, because he wants you to believe that is truly who you still are. And if he can get you to believe that that old person is who you are, that old person given to sin is who you are, then he can get you to walk back into the old habits. He wants to sell you your old identity to get you to walk like the old person. That's why Paul does the exact opposite here, reminding us of who we are now so we'll walk in who we are now and imploring us to walk in that reality and that truth every day. Look at the beautiful truth that Paul reminds us of at the end of the text when he says, sin no longer has dominion over you since you're under not the law anymore but under grace and you are in Christ. Paul showing us, friends, if your faith is in Jesus, sin does not control you anymore. It doesn't. It can't. It does not have that power anymore. It doesn't slap you around and make you do what it wants any longer as if you were helpless. So its power is weakened over you. Brother, sister, you can withstand temptation now. But here's the beauty. Not only is its power over you weakened, its authority over you is gone. Sin doesn't isolate you from God anymore. Why? Because you've been justified. You've been declared righteousness and you've been declared righteous and he'll never leave you or forsake you. Sin doesn't get to hold you under shame anymore because when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of his son in which he says, I am well pleased in him. Sin doesn't require you to pay the bill anymore because Jesus said it is finished on the cross. I paid it in full. Sin doesn't have to break your relationships anymore because you know who you are in Jesus and you don't have to use people anymore. Sin doesn't have to be your net default to all things anymore because Jesus is making you new and the power of sin is taken away. Again, it doesn't own you. So just walk away. So we get to believe that sin still has such strong power over us at times and, and we feel the power of temptation when the reality is the door is open, just walk out. See, we live in a world also consumed with the identity of the idea of identity right now. The world tells you live out the identity that you feel and you decide on. Be who you want to be. Live out your truest self. Whatever you feel, whatever you think, whatever you want, live out of that while Christians are invited to live in a new identity as well, the identity that Christ paid for. Notice this. We are both declaring that it is best to live out of your truest identity. Understand, we're saying the exact same thing as they are. Here's the caveat. We just disagree over who gets to define that for you. Who gets to define who you are? You are God. What I want to invite you to see is simply this. God has spoken a better word over you than you ever will. It's much better to let him define you than you. God has spoken a better word over you than the world will ever do about you. His promises over you better lean into them again remember the world says live out your truest self and I'll define what's truest self to me and we say no 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 I've tried to do that before and it doesn't work out well I'm going to lean into what you say I am and I'm going to live out of that that's a much better place to be sins and their fleeting joy cannot compare to what God has for you and what he said over you again so the message is to walk away from sin and stay in the grace and peace of God who gets to define who you are? You are the Father. That's the battle that we have to wrestle with. There's a song that we sang just a second ago. I'm going to read the words of it again. I'm going to do this. I, I, I don't know what's easiest for, for, for you, but I, I want you to, if you need to just kind of look down or close your eyes or just kind of, Chill for a second. I want you to hear these words and hear these. These are identity statements over and over and over about who you are and what God declares about you if you are in Christ. Again, the question is, who will I let define who I am? Myself, the world, or God? Who am I that the highest king would welcome me? Again, identity statements. I was lost, but he brought me in. Oh, his love for me. Here's where the identity starts to sing. Who the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. Free at last, he has ransomed me. His grace runs deep. While I was a slave to sin, Jesus died for me. Yes, he died for me. Who the Son sets free, oh, is free indeed. I'm a child of God, yes, I am. I kind of imagine you hear this and you beat your chest as you claim this is what he's given me. No one will take it away. In my father's house there's a place for me. Here's the connotation. In my father's house there's a place for me no matter what I say. In my father's house there's a place for me no matter what you say. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. I am chosen not forsaken. I am who you say I am. You are for me, not against me. I am who you say I am. The identity that he speaks over you is so much better than anything you'll speak over yourself. Hear me as we close. I hope this for you today, if you're a son or daughter of God, if your faith is in Jesus, and I just hope that you remember who you are. Remember the promises made over you. Remember the truth spoken over you. God has done much to grab you. And the Bible says, hey, you want to know if you're loved? God sent the Son to bleed for you to show you His love. You are loved. He has gone that far to grab you, and He will never, ever let you go. So when, when sin comes knocking at the door and you begin to strafe towards it or move towards it, remember it's not about making Him not hate you. It's about remembering that's not who you are anymore. It has nothing for you. It can give you nothing. It can not walk you into a better story than he has written for you. To walk in sin is to deny who you are. It's to live as someone that you are not. Do not walk in anything less than the full identity that Jesus paid in his blood for you. Friends, we need to do better with the language when we talk about accountability and things like that. When your brother or sister sin. They did not disappoint you. They did not act against you. They acted out of something that they are not anymore, first and foremost. We need to remember that. Now, can that spill onto us? Absolutely. But what if we got better at a call to, hey man, that's just not who you are anymore. I love you. Let's look at the word and see who you are. Let's look at the word and see who I am. Instead of statements of of shame and hurt, remember who you are. If you never trusted in Jesus and never confessed your need for him, the same reality is available to you. You just have to ask and it's yours. I'd be happy to pray with you about that after service if you want. But sin no longer has to own you anymore. You can be free, you can be made new in a newness of life that you don't have to earn or fix things to get. You call out, God, I need you. I'm a sinner in need of a savior and that is available to you. But please do not make the mistake of assuming that rather than asking for it. We're going to take communion today, band. You guys can come back up. First Corinthians eleven twenty three through twenty six. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and he said, "This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup." is the new covenant in my blood do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup you proclaim the lord's death until he comes we're going to play a couple closing songs and invite you to take communion there's the cups out at the front door you don't have to be a member here to take we just ask that your faith be in Jesus. but here's the beauty as you take today, you're, you're reminding yourself of the beauty. What Jesus has done, his broken body and broken blood didn't just die to save you from hell. it died, or He died to make you new. What he has paid, what he has given has been plenty to bring you to life in him. And I pray that you would see just in the beauty of taking the elements. His gift was enough and it has made you new. Would you see the beauty of who he's died to make you? There's a better word spoken over you than you'll speak over yourself or... The world will speak of you. Let's pray. God, I pray that you do your work in us today. Holy Spirit, come draw near to us. Man, I pray that you just wash over the beauty of the identity that you have given us to us, Lord. Not to the new believer or just some believers. I pray for all of us. Wash the identity of who you have made us into our hearts. Spirit, I pray that you press it deeper. Let us see it. I pray that where we feel trapped, where we feel isolated, where we feel under control, where, where where sin just seems to be at the door, would you see? Let us see the beauty that doesn't have the power over us anymore. Awaken us to the reality of what you have done, what you are doing, what you are calling us to, God. Lord, I pray that you would also awaken thankfulness in my heart to your good and your kind. What a good work! What a good word you have spoken over us. We're thankful even when we get distracted, even when we get just lured to other things. Thank you for the beauty of what you've done. Remind us of it. Wash us, wash us clean. Wash it into our minds.